Today we're continuing our series of characters of the Old Testament. Today we're going to look at Joseph. I know we're going, going back in time quite a bit, back to the book of Genesis. Joseph is a, uh, is a wonderful person to look at as we, we go through this. Joseph, is, well, as you'll see, is going to experience a lot of hardship in his life. Um, most, if not all, of it really not, not his fault. Um, yet he's going to persevere through that and become uh, one, of our, one of our greater characters, I think, of the Old Testament when it comes to a person of character, of willingness to, to sacrifice and to work, and, and a person of forgiveness. And so Joseph is a great person to look at as we, as we go through this series. We're going to jump into the story in Genesis 37. Now we're going to talk about Israel. Israel and Jacob are the same person. Jacob's name is, is changed to Israel by God. So when you hear Israel, remember Jacob, who we've already looked at, oh, probably a month or two ago. Genesis 37, jumping in in verse 3, it says, Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now poor Joseph doesn't get off on the right track here with his brothers. And it's not his fault. Jacob, Israel, chooses to favor Joseph over all the, uh, all the rest. Now, that's a terrible decision as a parent. We've talked about We've seen that already throughout the Old Testament. We've seen this happen more than once, where a parent will choose one as their favorite over the other, and it, it never turns out good. Remember Isaac and Rebekah, right? We saw what happened with, with, with Jacob and Esau. And so it's being passed down from generation to generation. Now, Jacob's doing the same thing that his parents had done by, by picking favorites. Picking favorites is not a good idea. And so everybody knows that Jacob, that Israel, loves Joseph the most. And he, he does it. He even gives him a, 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 a coat. Now, we've had all kinds of musicals done about the Technicolor dream coat, right? We're not sure what color the thing was or what, but it's a fancy coat. And he gives this to him kind of to show it's a symbol of, hey, you're my favorite. So there's no doubt about it, right? It's not as if Jacob had, had secretly said, well, Joseph's my favorite. I'm going to just know one. No, he, he comes out and has this, this huge gesture of making sure everybody else knows that Joseph is his favorite. And as you can imagine, the rest of Jacob's sons aren't too fond of the fact that Joseph is the favorite. And so from the get-go, the, the, the Bible tells us, verse 4, that they literally hate him. It's not as if they don't like him. It's like, eh, he's a nuisance that they hate him. And hate's a strong word, right? Hate is a strong, strong word. And the, and the scripture tells us that they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So Joseph doesn't exactly have a great relationship with his, with his brothers, as you can see here from the beginning. It's not a good, a good start. Joseph is a dreamer. You're going to see that theme throughout his entire life. God speaks to him, reveals things to him through dreams. We see this throughout the Old Testament, and I think even into some of the New Testament, we see that God can and does speak to people's dreams. Joseph has this dream, and this is what the dream says. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Now Joseph has a dream and we talked about last week the importance of speaking truth. Sometimes though, you, the truth that you speak maybe doesn't need to be spoken. In, he's already the favorite of dad. Then he has this dream that's given to him by God, and it's an accurate dream, as you're going to see. This isn't wrong. It's not, like, it's not as though Joseph's telling us a lie. 
But sometimes you don't need to say the things that come into your mind. And you maybe shouldn't say that to your brothers who already hate your guts, right? We've already decided that they hate him already. And he says, guess what, guys? I know you hate me, but this is going to make you love me more. One of these days, I'm going to rule over all you. And if you remember, well, if any of you guys have siblings, um, as the older sibling, when your younger sibling, sibling thinks they're better than you, you generally pound them to the ground and uh, make sure that they know that, right? And so it's a, he's the youngest, and he's telling them, well, someday, guys, I'm going to rule over you. And, and they're not fond of that. And then it continues, I'm not going to show it to you, but the next verse is he has the same dream again. It's just different circumstances. Tells it to them again, and they hate him all the more. And so Joseph, I think, could have helped himself here by just, just not speaking the, the dream, right? You have the dream. God tells you what's going to happen. Keep it to yourself. He doesn't do that, and it adds animosity to the relationship. And such animosity that what happens next is, is almost unthinkable. I'm just going to summarize it for you from 37 to 39. Joseph is sent by his dad to go check on his brothers. His brothers are shepherds. They're out with the sheep, right? They're out with their animals. He says, I need you to go check on them, see how they're doing, see what they need. So as he approaches them, they decide, we're going to kill him. We've had enough of him, had enough of Joseph. It's done. It's over with. He comes out here, we're just going to murder him and be over with it. Not exactly the, the greatest brothers in the world. Reuben says, we can't do that, guys. We can't kill him. So there's an empty cistern with no water in it. So they say, let's throw him in there. We'll leave him there. Whatever happens, happens. But we didn't kill him, right? We, didn't, we are not the ones who murdered him. His blood's not on our hands. The whole time, Reuben's plan is to come back later and get him, right? He's going to save Joseph. He's trying to protect him. Reuben goes off and does some stuff. Joseph gets there. They take his coat from him. It's the symbol, of course, of, of dad's favoritism for him. So they take his coat from him and throw him down in this cistern. As he's down in the cistern, some Midianites are on their way to Egypt traveling by. And they come, they, the brothers come up with the idea of, you know what, instead of just killing him, we get nothing out of it. Why don't we sell him? We'll sell him as a slave. We'll make some money. We'll tell dad that he, he was killed. Something happened to him. And then everything will be fine. Joseph's gone. Don't have to worry about him. And we made a little, little money. And his blood's not on our hands. So they sell him to the Midianites. Not exactly loving brothers, I know. Not brothers and siblings that you want. But that's what happened to Joseph. And so he's sold. Reuben comes back and finds out what happened. And he's distraught. So the brothers kill a goat. They dip his coat, Joseph's coat, in the blood and take it back to, to Jacob and say, hey, he was killed by a wild animal. Here's what's left of his coat. This is what happened. And Jacob begins to mourn that loss of his son. And it's his favorite son, so you can imagine he doesn't handle it all that well. Now Joseph is taken into Egypt, and he's sold to a man named Potiphar. And here's what we see in Genesis 39. It says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So Joseph is sold now as a slave. He's, he's sold into slavery. Which keep that in mind because the next book in the Bible after Genesis is the book of Exodus. And what happens in the book of Exodus, if you remember? All the Israelites become what? Become slaves. So Joseph's experience here is going to, the Israelites themselves are going to follow in Joseph's experience generations later. Okay? So Joseph is taken from his home from his family, and sold him to, to, as a slave to Potiphar's family. Everything's going well for Joseph. Joseph, God continues to bless Joseph. And so everything Joseph touches kind of turns to gold. And so Potiphar ends up putting him in charge of his entire household because Joseph has great business acumen and administrative skills. He can, he can organize and he can do stuff. And so Potiphar puts him in charge of his entire house. And everything is going great for Joseph. 
I mean, as, as a slave, it's about as good as it can get. Until one day, Potiphar's wife decides that she'd like to sleep with Joseph and tries to seduce him. And he rebuffs her. He says, no, I'm not doing that. There's no way I'm doing this to my, to my master. He's been so good to me. And so what she decides to do is she decides to make up a story about Joseph. That instead of it was her as the aggressor, it was him as the aggressor. And so Potiphar has Joseph thrown into prison for what he didn't do. Joseph didn't commit the sin, didn't do it, but his wife's story is going to hold over Joseph. He's just a slave. And so Joseph goes from being able to to manage Potiphar's house, having a little bit of freedom, to now in prison. If you're in Joseph's shoes at this point, are you getting a little discouraged? Your brothers didn't like you so much that they were going to kill you and were nice enough to spare your life and sell you into slavery. Now that you're a slave, things go well for you, right? You're doing the best you can. You're you're running Potiphar's business. You're taking care of his household until his wife comes along and does this to you. And now you've been thrown in jail. None of which has Joseph done any of these things to himself, right? Now we all make choices in life and there's choices, there's consequences with our choices. And sometimes when we do something wrong, we know we did something wrong and the consequences come, we go, okay, I mean, I did it. The consequences are here. But when things happen to you that you didn't do, when you suffer consequences from somebody else, that's a hard pill to swallow, right? When somebody else causes you grief, when somebody else causes you harm, as parents, when somebody else hurts our children, right? We're not going to stand for that. That's hard. That, that's an injustice, and it's hard to put up with. And as you see so far in Joseph's life, it's been one thing after another in which he didn't do, right? He didn't sell himself into slavery. His brothers did. He didn't advance at Potiphar's wife. She made an advance at him and then flipped it, and now he's in jail. I think a lot of us would have a really hard time of not giving up if we were Joseph in this part of the story, of going, man, when, is, when is things, are things going to go right? And yet what we see from Joseph time and time again, whether it's good or bad, is that he sticks with God no matter what. and says, you know what? God's going to see me through. Because God's been the reason I've, I've been blessed. God's been the reason I've had success. So I'm going to stick with him because I know it'll be okay. And far too often, we don't have that same response when bad things happen. We tend to blame God instantly instead of looking to God, of saying, you know what, God, you'll see me through. This might not be good. This might be difficult. This might be hard. This might create suffering in my life. But I know you're there still. And far too often, and this happens way too much on, with TV preachers, is we're told that as Christians, everything's going to go our way. You watch too much of Joel Osteen, I promise you that. You'll, you'll think that God just wants everything for you to happen in your life and everything is going to be puppies and rainbows. It's not. And where in the scriptures has God's people ever been promised that things will go their way? If you read the Bible from cover to cover, what you're going to see is there's a bunch of people who stuck with God despite difficult circumstances in their lives. And God doesn't always take those difficult circumstances away. Look to his son. If you need a better example, look to Jesus who is sinless, who is perfect, who does no wrong, yet suffers on our behalf. That's not just. That's not right. And that's not fair. He commits no sin and yet becomes, takes on all of our sin on our behalf. So the scripture is not about how when the day you become a Christian, everything's going to go well. That's just not true. If you've been sold that lie, I apologize. Because being a Christian doesn't mean bad things aren't going to happen to you. You just have somebody who's with you all the time. 
And no matter how crazy the storm gets, God's there. His promise that he'd never leave us, that he'll never forsake us, is always good, whether we're on the mountaintop or in the valley low. And for Joseph, guys, there's no better example to me of that than Joseph, of someone who's able to stick with God no matter the high, the the peak he's on, or the valley that he's in. He's with him no matter what. Now Joseph's in prison, a place of hopelessness. And when you're in prison in the ancient world, you're there until when someone feels like either getting you out or killing you. I mean, that's it. There's no, you don't get to go to a court and get to sit before with a jury of your peers and they give you a sentence, right? You're there until either they forget about you and you die or they come and they execute you. Or maybe if, you're, if something good goes on, you, you maybe they'll let you out. But that's not, not generally the case. And so while Joseph's in prison, people are still coming to him to interpret dreams. So they'll have a dream and they'll say, I'm Joseph, I'm not sure about this. What do you think this means? And Joseph gives it to him, good, bad, or indifferent. He gives him the interpretation of the dream. And his, what happens is, is his reputation for interpreting dreams is so good because he's right all the time, because, because God is assisting him in that, right? God gives him the gift, that it gets back to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's having the same dream over and over and over again, and nobody else that he trusts can interpret that dream. And so they call for Joseph. Joseph, can you interpret this dream? And, and Pharaoh, Joseph comes before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him the dream and interprets the dream. And the, the interpretation is not fun one, but he gives it to him. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream while he's in prison. That Pharaoh, what God's telling you is we're going to have seven great years when it comes to our harvests, right? Our agriculture is going to be great for seven years. But the next seven after that are going to be seven years of absolute famine. And so we better, during the great years, save up for the not-so-great years. Pharaoh trusts his dream so much that this, gets, that this happens to Joseph. So Pharaoh said to Joseph in chapter 41, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes. That's a coincidence, isn't it? A fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And the people shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Joseph goes from an inmate to second in command in the whole land of Egypt. And Egypt is one of, if not the greatest superpowers at this time in the world. All because he sticks with God. And God sticks with him. Even in the midst of his despair in prison, he doesn't give up on the the gift and the talent, the ability that God gives him, and he uses it for God and his glory. And God gets him into a position where Pharaoh literally puts him as second in command in the entire country. The entire land of Egypt is now under Joseph's command. Look what Pharaoh says to him. Verse 44. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephathath Penahah and gave him Azanoth, daughter of Potpheria, priest of On, to be his wife. Those are great names, by the way. No John or Joe, it's all crazy. Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. 
During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentiful. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in, the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. At 30 years old, Joseph is put in second in command of the entire country of Egypt. And what he does is great. He saves everything they possibly can and is putting it into storehouses in major cities in Egypt to the point in which they lost record of it. There was so much that they saved that they couldn't keep track of it anymore of how much was in these, in these storehouses. You see, Joseph has, has a gift of administration, of, of being able to, to, to organize and collect and do what needs to be done so that all these people will live. We think about it as famine in the ancient world is, is not a joke. Right? Without the modern technologies that we have today, when famine came and they had no way of irrigating, people died. And we're talking of in the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people when famines came. And so what Joseph is able to do here, as you'll see, he's going to save tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe a million people's life based on the vision that God gives him. And think about that for a minute. Joseph takes this gift that God gives him and doesn't keep it to himself, doesn't use it for his own personal gain, but takes the gift God gave him and blesses others with it. He takes the gift God gave him and says, hey, Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. Remember, he's, he's in prison in Egypt, and one of Pharaoh's officials put him there. And if Joseph is a man of vengeance... He says, oh, your dream? No big deal, don't worry about it. And he watches them all die. He goes, you guys are the scumbags that put me here, and I'm going I'm to get my vengeance back on you guys by not telling you what the dream actually means and letting you all die, which he certainly could have. He doesn't. See, one of Joseph's greatest gifts is his ability to forgive. That's a gift that we all can get better at, including myself. Forgiveness isn't always easy. When we've been wronged, it can be really, really difficult to say, you know what, okay, whatever, I'm moving on. Our first instinct isn't generally that. Our first instinct is, huh, how can I get them back and how fast and how bad can I do it? Often our first instinct. If you don't, if you don't believe me, think about your own life. When someone says something to you and your first thought is, hmm, I know all about you and your past. Let's, let's bring all that back up, right? We fight that urge, all of us do, always, when we're wronged. It's to not, it's to not get hit below the belt. And Joseph refuses to do that. He refuses to let any of his mind space or his time be consumed by, by hate and revenge. He uses his gift instead to, to bless other people. And we will never know the amount of people that Joseph is able to save because of this, because of what he does here. And he does that at 30 years old. The story continues in verse 50. It says, Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potpherah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my troubles and my family's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. 
Their names even have great meaning. You see it? Names he names his kids after the fact that it's going to be okay, that he's moving on and forgiving. That God has never let go of him, and he has never let go of God. Seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, you go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. What we learn in this section is that Joseph's actions don't just bless the Egyptians, but they're blessing the entire world. If you remember way back to Abraham, God gave Abraham a promise. He said, Abraham, if you follow me, if you leave your father and your mother and everything you've ever known, and you come with me, I will bless you. And you remember, Abraham's an old man, and what's, he, what's, the, what's the promise? I'll give you a son, and your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky, and you're going to bless the whole world. The whole world will be blessed through you. Well, when Abraham, it went Isaac, it went Jacob, and here's Jacob's son, Joseph, and what's happening? The whole world's being blessed through him. That one of Abraham's descendants, just a few generations earlier, is saving the world, literally. The world is coming to Egypt because I hear, hey, there's food there. And Joseph is able to sell food to them and is keeping the human race alive. Because God's promises have never and will never fail. And when God says, Abraham, if you trust me, this is what will happen. Just a few generations later, it's happening. And the world's being blessed because of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through Joseph and his actions. Pretty neat. This is when the story gets really interesting. I'd actually suggest you read this sometime. I, we can't read the whole thing here because it'll take too long. I'm going to summarize it for you, give you the Cliff Notes version. But all those brothers of Joseph that wrote him off, that sold him into slavery, guess what happens to them? They get hungry. There's famine in their land too. So Jacob sends them down to Egypt, says, hey, I've heard there's, there's grain in Egypt. I need you guys to go to Egypt and get us some food or we're all going to die. You've got to go. And so they, they appear before Joseph, not having a clue who he is, right? I mean, they've written him off years ago. Joseph recognized them immediately, and, and so they, they, they make a few visits. Over time, Joseph is, is, is blessing them more than he should, and they don't know why, and they can't figure exactly out what's going on. And Joseph finally reveals himself to, to his brothers in tears. And it's a, great, it's a great passage when you get home tonight. Make sure you, you read chapters 42 through 43. They, they go fast, but they're, they're just beautiful of, of, of a person Joseph being able to rise above hate and hurt and anger and fear to forgive people who he, who he had no business forgiving. It's a, it's a marvelous story of, of someone who is able to, to go above what someone has done to them and able to forgive. 
That's what Joseph does. And Joseph literally moves his entire family, including Jacob, to Egypt to care for them. The brothers who sold him into slavery, he not only takes care of them, but takes care of their families, and they bring them. When they come to Egypt, Pharaoh says, Joseph, wherever you want them to go, you go. And he sends them to the land of Goshen. Now, if you get on your map on Google Earth and you, you scroll into to Egypt, you know what you're going to see? Is there's two rivers that come down in a V-shape and, and form the Nile River. And between those two rivers is the land of Goshen. And when you're going to look in your map on your phone or online or if you have a map at home, the greenest part of Egypt, that's the widest, is the land of Goshen. The land where, where these people get to come to, where, where Jacob's family gets to come to. It's lush, right? Everything along the Nile River is beautiful. Everything else out of Egypt is like going out in our hills, right? Nothing there. No water, nothing. It's dead as can be. But the land in which they get to settle in is one of the, the best parts of all of Egypt. And it's all because of Joseph and what he's done for the Egyptians and what he does for his family. Joseph forgives. He moves on. Now, Jacob's life comes to an end here in chapter 50. Actually, happens earlier, but they talk about it here with the brothers in chapter 50. And in 50, 15, chapter 50, verse 15, this is what happens. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Uh-oh, right? Joseph is dad's favorite. Dad's gone. What's stopping Joseph from finally getting his revenge? That's what they're worried about, right? What if this whole time Joseph's been nice to us just because of dad, because how much dad loved him, and now he's going to have his revenge on us that dad's gone. Now, there's nothing stopping him. Remember, he's the second below Pharaoh, who Pharaoh was essentially, depending on which kingdom it was in e- Egypt, is essentially a god, right? Below Pharaoh, Joseph, everybody else. And the brothers realize if Joseph wants to kill us all right now, you know what Joseph gets to do? Gets to kill us all right now. They're thinking to themselves, uh-oh. What if his compassion wasn't real? What if his forgiveness was just an act? And while dad was alive, he, he played along the act, but now that dad's gone, he's going to just, just rain justice on us all. And they get a little scared. And in verse 16 it says, So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Say, hey, you know, dad wouldn't want you to kill us all. We know you're his favorite, but he, liked, he did care for us too. So please be compassionate to us and please have mercy and please forgive. And when the message comes to Joseph, he simply weeps. And look at his response. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. You remember that dream Joseph had? Years ago, before he got thrown in the cistern, what was it? There, Joseph rose above and the rest of them did what? As if he was right. It was years ago. They, they, they wanted to kill Joseph because of that dream. And now they're hoping that he doesn't kill them. And look what Joseph does. Verse 19. He says to his brothers, 
Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. He has this moment of justice, of revenge, and he lets it pass. His response to them is, am I the, my God? It's not my job to take life. It's not, that's not my role. The thing is, you guys, is he can do it. It actually is in within his frame. He's the second in command. If he wants someone dead, they're dead. No questions asked. Yet Joseph doesn't let power, doesn't let authority go to his head. And how many times do we see a person of Saul, someone we're going to see later in the, in the Old Testament, right? Of as soon as Saul becomes king, what happens? The power, the authority, it goes straight to his head, right? And he starts as if he's the most important person on the planet and he, everything he does and says is good and what everybody else does is wrong and God says, enough, enough, you're done, right? You're done. Joseph is the exact opposite of that. Joseph is the kind of person who needs to be in leadership, who needs to rule, because it never affects who he is and who his character is, right? He doesn't let any of the power, any of the authority go to his head. He's the same person he was that was thrown in the cistern, that was, that was the servant in charge of Potiphar's house, that the, the same person that was in prison, and now at second in command, he's the same person the whole time. The same person of character, person who has values and ethics and morals. He's the same. None of those situations change, changes who Joseph is. No matter what situation he's in, Joseph is the same person. And that's the goal for us. That no matter what comes our way, no matter how good it is or how bad it is, it doesn't change who we are. That our character, that the foundation that everything we have is built on, it's unchanging because it's been placed in God. And God is unchanging. The standard never changes. He expects the same from us yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and the day after that. Be the kind of person who does the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Not because it benefits you. Not because you can deceive that person a little longer. But you make that choice. You do the right thing because simply because it's the right thing to do. And Joseph is that person who makes the right decisions and has the right choice and is, is that kind of person simply because that's who God has asked him to be. And if, if there's anyone we have seen, and we've seen some great people and we've seen some not so great people throughout this series, right? We've seen people who we want to emulate and people who we do not want to emulate. And far too often, the people who we don't want to emulate are the ones that we read too much about in the storybook. Samson's one of those people, right? Saul's another one of those people who are selfish who were arrogant, who sought pleasure before they sought truth, who didn't do the right thing because it was the right thing to do. They did the right thing only when it benefited them. And when it didn't benefit them, they did the wrong thing. Then we have people like Joseph, who's the exact opposite of those two, who does the right thing even when he doesn't have to. And guys, right here, he doesn't have to be the bigger person. He doesn't have to do the right thing. He can do whatever he wants. Pharaoh has given him all the power he could possibly have. And yet he chooses to forgive. Not only does he choose to forgive, he doesn't just say, oh, I'll let you guys live, but I don't want to see you ever again. What's he do? Verse 
verse 21. I will provide for you and your children. It doesn't say you can live now that dad's, dad's gone. I'll let you live, but you need to get out of here and go. He says, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of your family. I'll make sure that you guys have a good life. He doesn't make that decision because of how good they are. They weren't so good to him. He makes that decision because of how good our God is. We have the same choice. Are we going to be good to the people around us even when they're not good to us? And that is hard to do. Are we going to forgive? Are we going to be the bigger person? Are we going to let bygones be bygones? Are we going to forgive and we're going to move on and we're going to let go? Not because of how good that person is because maybe they're not. Maybe they're not good at all. But because of how good our God is. Remember, those of us who live on this side of the cross have seen and tasted of how good our God is. Because he sent his son, his only son, who was the epitome of good, the only one who can claim perfection. He sent his son to this earth to live a sinless, blameless, perfect life and yet to give everything for us. What we see in Joseph becomes even greater in Jesus. All the good we see in Joseph is, 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 is magnified a million times in the person of Jesus. Who lays down his life for ours. Gives everything so that you and I can live. So as Christians, our calling is to try to be like him as much as we possibly can. It's to take the characteristics of Joseph that are, and, and as they were magnified and, and even greater in Jesus and try to put those characteristics on ourselves and try to live a life that's worth living. A life of forgiveness, of mercy, of compassion. A life that others see and go, I want that. I want that life. You can't help but read Joseph's story and think to yourself, man, I'd like to be a little bit more like him. You're writing a story as well. What's written in it? When someone reads your story someday, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren, what will they read about you? What story will you leave? Because if you read Joseph's story, you go, man, that's a great man. When they read your story, what will it say? And more importantly, who will it point to? Our goal is our great-great-grandchildren will read a story someday about how faithful we were, that we weren't perfect, that we didn't have it all together, but we loved this God of ours with everything we possibly had, did everything we possibly could to point others to him. That's what I hope my story says. I don't know about you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come here and read about a great man named Joseph. A man who was able to, to forgive, 
to move past vengeance and fear and to live in the realms of forgiveness and love, of mercy and compassion. And Father, it just it points us to you. We see it in Joseph, Father, but we know that the, what Joseph is, who Joseph is emulating is, is just you. You are a God that loves us, that cares so deeply for us, that pours out your compassion and your mercy on us constantly. Father, we're so grateful that you're, that's who you are. There's been lots of gods that, that men have made up over millennium gods who weren't anything like you. You paled in comparison to who you are. Father, we ask that you would help us as we leave this place today, as we go back to work, and our, our kids are, will be back in school in just a few weeks. We ask that you help us, and everywhere we go, whether we're at the grocery store, we're at work, we're at a PTA meeting, we're at a sporting event, wherever we are, God, to emulate your characteristics, to be like you, to be people of love and compassion and mercy and grace, even when we've been wronged. And Father, we know that's extraordinarily difficult, so we're depending wholly and completely on you to transform us, to mold us and to shape us into the kind of people that you want us to be. Father, help us to come to you when, when we don't, when we fail. We come to you and we ask for forgiveness. And Father, we know that you'll bandage our wounds. You'll pick us back up. You'll set us on your paths all over again. Father, we're thankful for the person of Jesus who displayed for us exactly what it meant to live a life on mission for you, a life fully consumed by you. We ask that you help us to be more and more like him every day. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray.